Thank you. I have been uh, listening to that song we just sang over and over and over again. I love the line, all of my life, in every season, you are still God. I have a reason to sing. I have a reason to worship. Aren't you glad we don't listen to eight tracks and cassettes anymore where you just like wear the tape out? Now digitally, it never wears out. You can just keep playing it over and over and over again. I have done that with that song. It has ministered to me, and I've been personally looking forward to our congregation learning it and uh, making it a part of our worship language here. And there's a truth in that that uh, that I think all of us need. It's called the Desert Song, if you want to get it on iTunes. It's been a blessing. You know, sometimes, speaking of blessings, sometimes uh, in the ebb and flow of a church's ministry, there are... Uh, weeks where God uniquely blesses the message, just in an unusual way. Blesses the preacher, blesses the message, blesses the congregation. And uh, I hope for that every weekend. It doesn't happen every weekend. But based on the response that I've gotten from our church family, I think he did that last weekend. And as we talked about living life with a loose grip, my intent was just to do that one message and get back into 1 Corinthians, but uh, I think that it has struck a chord in our church, and based on that, felt the need for us just to, to linger on it a little bit longer. And there is so much more to be said about this that I thought I probably could scramble a message together, of some, cobble something together for us today, and to maybe implant this truth a little firmer into our hearts. Well, it's been a week and none none of us probably have perfect recall. So let me just remind us of what we talked about last week on this subject. Here's the cliff notes. There's two ways to live. There's the life with a firm grip and there is life with a loose grip. And by grip, we're referring to the right that I feel to manage my own life. Self-management, the control that I desire to have over all of the categories of life. And you don't have to be a control freak to want that. We all do. Naturally, our flesh does. So these categories can include our self-identity, our relationships, our career, our marriages, our children, our families, our singleness, our health, and really anything else that is important to us. These, these things in our value set that we look at our life and we say, those are things that really matter to me. These are all things that are contexts where I can either live with a firm grip or a loose grip. Well, here's what happens is that life, life happens and life inevitably veers in directions that we deem unpleasant. There are trials that come into our life. There are difficulties and they are especially difficult for us. When something that we value, something that we're gripping, is being threatened. Now I am in a crisis because life is forcing me to do something that I don't want to do. Namely, to open my hand, to give up control, to loosen my grip. And these are some of the most devastating human experiences when we are in a tug of war with life. 
Now, as Christians, we believe that God is providential in all things. He is sovereign in all things, which means that in my life, when these things are happening and I'm in this tug of war, I'm not, I'm not in a tug of war with, with my health. I'm not in a tug of war with uh, a school. I'm not in a tug of war with uh, my boss. I'm in a tug of war with God. God is sovereign and providential in all the things of our life. So, who wins those uh, tug of wars? Anybody here ever won, won one with God? I'm thinking not, because after all, He is God. He's God. We don't win against Him. And yet we try, and the natural response in these moments is to grip tighter, to want to hold on, to try to outmaneuver God, and to ensure that we remain in control. Eventually what happens to us is that we have to give up control of everything. We may think, oh, I'm winning. And even maybe today you're listening to this message going, oh, I don't know. I might be the exception because I don't see God threatening this thing at all. I might get through life clean and free. Actually, what's going to happen is you're going to die. And death is a kind of loosening of my grip on every temporal thing that I value in this life. Have you ever seen a corpse with a firm grip? I never have. They all have loose grips. And that is a metaphor for what happens to all these things that in our life we we live for and we treasure and we have our identity on and in. God, in the end, loosens our grip. And we looked at Acts 20, verse 24, where the Apostle Paul says, However... I do not consider my, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task. The Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And we see in this passage that the apostle is making a kind of comparison. He's saying there is something that is really valuable to me. And there is something that is not so valuable to me of no value is my life in comparison to the ultimate value which is the work of God and the kingdom of God and fulfilling the great commission and the things that are going to matter in eternity. And maybe you've heard it before. There are two things that last forever, the word of God and people. And the question is always, where should our priorities lie? And indeed that is the case. And Paul, Paul saw that. And so he, he, he was living this way. And we use the analogy of a teeter totter where when we're a kid and we get on the teeter-totter, it always, it takes two people to be on it. You can't, you know, if you ever teeter-totter by yourself, it's no fun at all. You need to have somebody else on the other side. Uh, and, and you have a bit of a debate in that moment as to who's going up and who's going down. Because both of you can't go up. If one goes up, it requires the other one to go down. And that's a picture of what Paul is saying here. He is saying that in my life, in my value set, the thing that is important, the thing that is going up is Christ. And his work and his ministry and his church, which means at the same time, I am going down. My sense of of control in my life, my value of my life is going down as he goes up, which is what John the Baptist said. He must increase, I must decrease. We want to say he must increase and so must I. We want to do this with our teeter-totter. You go up, I go up. Ever seen that work on a teeter-totter? It doesn't. 
One has to go down. And God is in the process of helping us realize that the way to live real life is living this way. With Christ at the center. With Christ as the, as the value. And to the lessening of my view of myself and my rights and my worth and value and all of this. It is not about me. It is about him. So today what I want to talk with you about is how and why God does this. How and why God loosens our grip. And our passage today is 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And if you have a Bible, please turn there. If you don't, I think we have it on the screen. Uh, And this is the Apostle Paul. Again, we're getting a lot of Paul, aren't we? First Corinthians, last week, Acts. Well, he wrote a lot of the Bible, okay? So uh, take your issue up with the Holy Spirit. Uh, And he writes now in 2 Corinthians 1, very uh, biographically now, he says, beginning in verse 8, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Now, the spiritually ambitious uh, here in the room might naively think to themselves, oh, you know what? Wouldn't it be great to be a leader, a spiritual leader? I mean, wouldn't it be great to be a deacon in the church? Wouldn't it be great to be an elder or a pastor? And somebody goes, oh, yeah? Well, if you get to pick what you want to be, I want to be an apostle. I want to be like top dog in the church. That's what I want. I think that'd be awesome. Okay? Uh, Actually, no, it would not. And we see that here in this, in this story, and we see it in the story of the apostles. Eleven of the apostles died as martyrs. I'm thinking now the, the apostles' sign-up list in the back of the room just got shorter right there, right? Well, I don't know, maybe I'll be okay being a deacon uh, then. I'm not sure I want to be uh, an apostle. We hear, the, we hear Paul here autobiographically describing what his experience is like as an apostle. And what we find here is unlike your major corporations or your major government leaders, to be a leader in the church means trouble and difficulty and struggle. In fact, if all we knew was the life of the apostles in relationship to what the church is all about, we would come to the conclusion that the foundation of the church is suffering. And then, of course, you add the founder of the church into the mix, and now you know why the emblem of Christianity is a cross. Welcome to the party. Why does God do it this way? Well, the apostle Paul gives us a glimpse into his thinking about the pain and the struggle in his life. And he's looking back here, describing a really tough time in his life. And I find this wonderfully encouraging because he is describing how utterly discouraged he was. So our heroes were in despair. Our heroes were discouraged. Lo and behold, our heroes were just like us. 
I like that. There's some encouragement in that, don't you think? If we read the story and the apostles were all like, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before, we'd be like, oh man, I can't relate to that. But then you read a passage like this and he's like, I'm despairing. We're like, I like this guy. He's just like me. Indeed. Notice the words that are used to describe what he is feeling, what he is experiencing. He says it was affliction, utterly burdened, beyond strength, despair. In fact, he goes on in verse 9 to say that from his perspective, he thought his life was over. He thought, I I have a sentence of death on my life. Like, I'm not going to make it in this thing. Ever been there? I, this is more than I can handle there. I am done for this is it. Put a fork in me behind the English words in the Greek is even a more vivid picture of what he was experiencing. For example, the word burdened, the word was used to describe a ship that had too much weight it is, it, it's, it's got, it's, it's overburdened and it's got too much weight. It's low in the water and the waves are swamping the ship. Does that sound like a, uh, an experience maybe that you've been through where like, this is like too much and the things, if the waves are coming over the ship right now. I feel like I'm going down. If you ever watch uh, the show deadliest catch, then you know that ever periodically in those, in the episodes, they will show one of these uh, fishing trolleys in the Bering Sea, and it's in a storm, it's got too much crab in it, and it's, 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 uh, it's, it's being swamped, and out comes the Coast Guard and all of that. That picture of a low-sitting ship with the waves coming over, that's what this word is describing. It's a pretty vivid picture of the human experience, don't you think? I like that. He also says, beyond strength... To say, I do not think that I have the resources in this trial to get through it. I don't think I can make it. I think that this is the end. This is more than I can handle. So we see him feeling overwhelmed. He's feeling underpowered. And then he goes on to say, I feel despair. Now that's a word we don't like very much. I don't. I don't like feeling despair. The word means, I I feel like I... Am, I, am, I am destitute of any help. There's, there's nobody that can help me in this. I renounce all hope. This is the Apostle Paul saying this. The Apostle Paul. You know. If you were to meet the Apostle Paul, we, you know, we'd all be like, oh, Paul, you know. He, you know he, he may not walk on water, but almost, you know, he's like godly and writes Bible and great missionary to the Gentiles. And yet, experiences the same kinds of sorrows and troubles and affliction that fills this room today. In fact, do you remember our prayer meeting back in November where we had people texting in from each service and putting it up on the screens, prayer requests, anonymously. This is what's going on. Please pray for this. Please pray for this. I'm in this trouble. I have this affliction. I was stunned to see the kinds of heartache and sorrow that every service, all three services showed. And I guarantee here this morning are very much present. If the hearts here anonymously could say, please pray for me. This is the human experience. If you have a view of Christianity where, again, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before, no, it's hard. 
and there's trouble. And even the leader, one of the key leaders of the church says, listen, I thought I was done for. That's the despair that I had. Okay, Paul, we get it. You're human, cut you, you bleed. We understand. Can you give us a little help here, though? And indeed he does. And what I want to point out to you is what Paul saw in what God was doing in his life. In the boat swamping, no resource, despairing of life experience, Paul saw something and rested in something that we all need to get here if we're ever going to make it through these inevitable times that come into our life. Back to the text. Notice what it says in verse 9. What was the purpose of all this affliction? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Let me say that again. What it, why is this here? Why did it happen? That was to make us rely not on ourselves. Not. Did you get that? Not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Friends, when we are in an experience where there is something that we treasure or value in our life, a temporal thing, something, something that we don't get to keep in eternity, but is really, really important to us, and life is turning in a direction where I am being forced to open my hand and loosen my grip on that particular thing, what do we inevitably ask in the midst of those times? Why? Right? Why is this happening? Why are you allowing this to happen? God, what, what good purpose could there possibly be in this thing that you have brought to my life? Well, typically what we do is we try to put parameters on the acceptable divine answer to that. So we will, in our heart, and maybe even in our prayers, say something like this. Well, God, I'm going to be okay with this if, on the other side of it, there are personally desirable results that come from it. I will choose joy in this sorrow as long as that's the fruit of what happens. Or we will say, God thinks things need to be better for me on the other side of this. Okay, I'm okay with a little suffering, but it's got to be better on the other side. Or, God, I, I need to know that people are admiring my courage and my faith in the midst of this suffering. As long as I'm getting a lot of pats on the back for how amazing I am in the midst of this, then I'll generally be okay with the trial or I'll be okay with it. As long as God rewards me for this with things that I want, then I'm okay. So as long as God meets my preset divine parameters for good coming out of this, then I perhaps can have a good attitude about the trial that I'm in. If that doesn't happen, like if I get through this hor horrible time and there's not good things on the other side of it, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to be mad at you. I'm going to be bitter at you. And I'm never going to trust you again. And we question God's goodness and his love. So guess what happens? Life, again, veers in directions where things happen that are irrevocably bad, unchangeably bad. Things happen that all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put it back together again. 
And in the midst of that, we look at it and we say, I do not see anything good coming from this. Last night, I was already asleep. I got a call from somebody that in our church describing a tragedy that happened to them. And literally, I'm quoting from last night. If my eyes are a little bleary, you know why this morning. Last night said, I don't see any good coming in this. It's exactly what he said. That's exactly what we do. We think, how could anything good come of this? Why would you allow it to happen? And that is why we have got to live in these moments in verse 9. Because it says, the purpose of these afflictions is to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. In other words, Paul saw a divine purpose, not necessarily in the circumstances or how the circumstances played out, but in his own heart. And that in God's view, that is sufficiently good. If in the trial, all the good that comes from it is that I am not holding on to things that I got to give up someday anyway, but I am learning that God is reliable, that is a good thing. And friends, that is, we got to realize that most of the time, that is probably the good thing. Because life happens and bad things happen that cannot be changed. And if we're waiting for God to come back to our parameter for good, where this is now all better and everything's been wrapped up and now I'm actually better than I was before, so now I can see good in it, we are going to be bitter, bitter people. And you probably know people like that. Learning not to trust on myself is not good enough for us, but it is good enough for God. He knows what we need. And he's got to wean us off of this kind of self-reliance and self-trust and, and the sense that I can do it myself. He puts us in positions where we cannot do it ourselves. We can't fix it. No matter how smart we are and educated and creative and clever, we can't fix it. So guess what we do in those moments? We either get bitter and hold on to that kind of emotional control or... We see a good in God helping us to give it up. You can look at the life of the Apostle Paul. You know, these things that are happening to him, it's not that like people are, people, you know, people called him a bad name. He was beaten almost to the point of death. They thought he was dead. They left him for dead. He was slandered by his own people. Everywhere he went, there were people that loved him and there were people that hated him. His life was in danger. He has a a list later in 2 Corinthians of all the things that he has suffered as an apostle. I mean, we're not talking about like, you know, his neighbor, his neighbor doing something sort of mischievously bad against him. You know, we're talking like big time stuff that happened to him. How can this be good? Well, it was good because of the fruit it bore in his life. We consider the cross. And actually, this is where I went with the fellow on the phone last night. He said, what good is there in this? And I said, I don't know. But here's what I can tell you. The cross is the greatest injustice, the greatest tragedy that has ever happened. And it is also the greatest good that has ever been produced. And only God can do that. So what is plain here is that God has different goals than we do. 
God has very different goals than we do. And God knows that for his glory and for our good, he has to root out the self. He has to get us to a point of dying to ourself. His glory requires it. So this kind of self-capable, self-sustaining, self-exalting, self-trusting spirit that all of us naturally have somehow has to be taken out and removed so that we can know the way that it really is. You know, what happens often for us, I think, is when life is good, we assume that God is happy with us. You know, when, when showers of blessing, showers of blessing we see, mercy drops round us are falling. I don't know why that came to my mind right there, but that's like an old song that I grew up singing in church. And showers of blessing. We, we love that song. Why? Because it's like, yes, the blessings are coming. And indeed they are all the time in ways that we don't realize. But that's an easy song when, when you feel like you're in a shower of blessing. But when you're in a cold shower, it's harder to sing that. And we can assume that when things are going good, God is happy with me, at least happier with me than the people around me that it's not going so good with. And when things are going bad, God is mad at me. No. God loves me enough to bring bad to me, to get rid of me out of my heart and to loosen my grip on these things. It's like counterintuitive to the way that we want to think about things, but this is the way that God works. So I wrote down here, God loves us enough to show us how stupid we are. (laughs) Think about it. If you were God and you were wanting to loosen your grip on temporal things that are not worthy of your life and that you got to give up someday anyway, how would you go about doing it? Now, some of us would say, well, if I was God, I can tell you what I would do. I would give me everything I want all the time. I would want every dream I've ever had fulfilled. I would want perfection in every aspect of my life. And one time, I want to drive down Highway 30 with all the lights green. I want to live my life with every light green. That's maybe another way to say it. Just everything's good. Now, how effectively would that root out self? Not very well. As the old saying says, all sun makes a desert. And all goodness and blessing and happiness all the time makes for spiritually desert Christians. And God loves us enough not to do that. Think of Israel. Every time Israel prospered, and this is something that American Christians, we need to hear all the time. We're the most prosperous people in the history of the world. Every time Israel prospered, they forgot God. They got thinking that they didn't need God. And so guess what God would do? He would send them more gold and more silver and just all, everything's good. No. That's what you think you've never read the Old Testament. He would bring trouble. He would bring difficulty. He would bring affliction. So that in the affliction, the Israelites would realize that they need him more than anything else. 
I remember hearing a politician say to me personally, I heard it from his own lips. He said, why do I need God? I'm the, and gave his position in political government. Why do I need God? Look at who I am. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. Friends, when life is, when life is loosening our grip on things that I don't get to keep anyway, here's what we can know. That God is doing something good in my life. If you are here today and there is an unpleasant circumstance in your life and you, if you were God, would change it, you do something different, you would never let that happen. You think, why can this, why is this happening? I see no good in it. Here is one good that your heart can land on. That God is weaning me off of me and is helping me realize what he is like, namely that he is reliable and trustworthy. I was talking with a couple here last week, standing right here after the service, and they related to me. Uh, he has worked, the husband has, has worked for Dawn Foods for about eight years. And if you didn't know Dawn Foods, I mean, it's like our neighbor right behind us here. They announced last week that the part of the plant was closing and there's been some debate in the community about the nature of that and if you've been following that at all. But here's this couple, you know, doesn't matter the debate for them. This guy's probably losing his job. And you know what they said? The wife, the wife steps up and she goes, you know what we're trying to do? We're trying to apply our faith to this trial. I so appreciated that. I was like, you know, it's one thing to preach it, sing about it, blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me and the world's always to be, you know, all they sing that song, desert song and all of that. It's one thing to do that. But when you've just found out you lost your job, this is a rubber meets the road moment, don't you think? Who am I depending on? What am I valuing? The security of a steady income or am I trusting in the Lord? Now that couple, did, did they know that that trust or faith was there prior to the trial? Probably not. But what is the trial doing? It is, it is unveiling that in a way that we can so admire. And it's for their encouragement. And that's what God's doing. Okay? That's what God is doing over and over and over again. And then we die. We give up everything and we go to heaven. That's life. Accept Christ, suffer, give up, die, go to heaven. Did you get that? If you're a Christian, that's the path that you're on. You're not dead yet, but close. So I'm just saying, that's what's going on. So the first thing, first reason is to get us off of us. And to get our reliance on him. Secondly, is so that we can live what we believe. So that we can live what we believe. Look back now to verse 9. And let's just walk through it. There's truth here. Every word is inspired by the Holy Spirit for our good. Here's what it says. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. And here now is this little phrase. Who raises the dead? Who raises the dead? Now, that's an interesting little phrase, don't you think? I mean, couldn't he have just ended it like, we rely not on ourselves, but on God, period. I mean, God is God. That's all we need. Why add the resurrection resume item? 
God, who by the way, in case you didn't know, raises the dead. All right, well, let's look at the sentence structure here, class, just for a moment. Notice the verb, the carryover verb here is rely. So we are relying not on ourselves, next clause, but on God. The context then is the trial, that's the that, the affliction. The purpose of the affliction is to teach us to rely on God. So if there was a period after God, the natural question that we would ask is, how do I know that he is reliable? Great to see you that, Paul, that we, can, that we can rely on God. But how do I know that that's a place that I want to put my faith and trust in this God? Well, that is why he says, who raises the dead? Now, notice the tense of the verb. It's not raised the dead, although that would be totally accurate and true. And we would go, oh, it's a reference to God raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And we would celebrate the fact that he died for our, for our, uh, for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. Romans four, we would talk about the resurrection of Jesus and the power of God to raise him from the dead. And we would celebrate that and it would be totally true, but that's not what it says. Raise, not raised, raises the dead. Friends, the fact that God has done something dramatic like raise Jesus from the dead in the past is wonderful. We celebrate it and we ought to. But it doesn't necessarily personally comfort me in the midst of my trial. I mean, if I hear that you gave $1,000 to somebody in the past is no guarantee that you're going to give $1,000 to me today. Just because you've done it doesn't mean you're going to do it again. So Paul says, God who raises the dead. What do I need to know in the midst of a sorrow and a trouble and a trial? I need to know that God is for me. <clears throat> I read that this morning in my time, my just brief personal time, Psalm 59. What a wonderful Psalm. David says, I know that my God is for me. That's one of my verses I'm living on today. Now, why does God use unpleasant things, unpleasant things to wean us off of us. Why is it in the midst of these unpleasant things that it feels like I'm dying? I am dying to this thing. And that thing can be a relationship. That thing can be my desire for health, perfect health. It can be a career goal. It can be my desire to be married. It can be my desire to not be married anymore. It can be my whatever thing it is. Why does the unpleasant thing feel like I am dying to it? Well, the reason for that is so that we can live what we believe. And what this is saying here is that if God raises the dead physically, that means that our God can raise us spiritually from the ashes of the despair of our life. He is a God who raises the dead. And so, if he raises the dead, it means that God can raise me. That's the point. If God raises the dead, then God can raise me. So that here you are today, you're like, oh, this is a great message for me. I'm in such trouble. I've got so much affliction. I'm so ticked off. I've got this thing going on. 
What, what, give me something. Here's what I can give you. He has raised the dead. And if he can do the big thing, which is raise the dead, then he can raise you from whatever you're going through. He's a God of resurrection is what it means. Early church father Chrysostom said this, notwithstanding that the resurrection is a future event, he shows that it happens every day. For when God raises up again a man whose life is despaired of and who has been brought to the very gates of hell, he shows nothing other than a resurrection, snatching from the very jaws of death the one who had fallen into them. Now, I don't know about you, but I would much prefer it not to work this way. I mean, why all this dying to self? stuff why can't we just receive jesus as savior live our lives die and go to heaven why in this time between my receiving of christ and my death do i got to die i mean i'm gonna die anyway isn't that enough why all this purifying and pruning and sanctifying which are all hard Why do we have to go through this? Here's why. In the words of C.S. Lewis, nothing that has not died will be resurrected. Nothing that has not died will be resurrected. God raises the dead and he wants to raise every aspect of our life. But the only way he can raise that aspect of our life is if we die to it. As long as it is ours and as long as it is treasured and as long as it is worshipped, he will not glorify it. We must die to it so that he then from the ashes can resurrect it to his glory. And the only way that we die to things, it's not by all kinds of, you know, flowers and, 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 that's a wrong way to say that. Not, it's not, it's not sugar and spice and everything nice all in our life, all the time that we die to things. It is through pain and sorrow and affliction that we come to realize this thing, I can't live for it. It doesn't, it doesn't bring meaning to my life. It's not what I thought. i got to die to it. And in that death, now God is in a position where he can resurrect it in our life in a way that we no longer worship it, but we give God glory for it. So God orchestrates trials for us and uniquely fashions them for what he knows the value set of our heart is. And that is why my trials are different than your trials and your trials on this side over here are different than somebody's trial over here because the trial that you're going through doesn't, doesn't address the hard issues of my life. And the trial that I'm going through doesn't address the hard issues of your life. Our all knowing all wise God, he knows exactly what is required to get down to the root of it all. Have you noticed when God, when God brings trials into our life, he typically is not messing around with value number seven or eight or nine on the list. He's dealing with one, two, or three. And that is why it hurts so much. 
Think about times in your life, Christian, the dark times. Why was it so dark? Is it not because it was dealing with something that is so important to you? That is the way that it goes. Friends, God has to get us to the point of surrender. Surrender. You know, when an army surrenders, they are, they're not merely saying, I'm not going to fight anymore. I think it's known as an armistice, is it not? You know, it's just kind of a declared ceasefire. We, there's still animosity there. In fact, I just found out yesterday that uh, a week from Saturday, I am uh, going to be uh, participating in the World War II reenactment at the Buckley Homestead, which I'm kind of excited about. And uh, I've, I've loved World War II all my life. I've read tons of books on it and love the History Channel and all of that. And I ran into somebody who's a part of that and said, oh, yeah, we could maybe get you in. And I'm like, yes, I would love to do that. <laughs> so a week from Saturday in the, in the morning, um, I, now here's the thing. I've got a, I've got a fight on the, on the German side. So, but you would never go to the, the cowboy movies if there weren't Indians, right? I mean, somebody's got to be on, somebody's got to, somebody's got to fulfill that role. So I'm going to go and fulfill that role. And I'm really looking forward to it. I get a gun and everything. So, uh, yeah, I'll have pictures. Trust me. It's, there are sermon illustrations just dripping from that experience. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it, but war, a, a surrender is not simply saying, I'm not going to fight anymore. It is saying that I am not in control anymore. Somebody else now is in control. And I may not like it in a war, because you have been my enemy. But in our case, it is letting God be in control. Nothing that has not died can be resurrected. And Paul says, listen, he has raised the dead. And if he raises the dead, he can raise you too. If he can do the big thing, then he can deal with the smaller thing that is creating all of this trouble in my life. I read recently that uh, a very famous pilot recently re retired, and many of you know who uh, Captain Sully Sullenberger is, who famously captained, uh, piloted the uh, U.S. Airways flight uh, under no power. Birds hit the engines. He had no power. He glides it down the Hudson River, successfully lands it in the Hudson River, gets everybody off of the plane. Nobody is lost. And uh, overnight, he became like pretty much national hero. So that like, the, you know, the Congress, they're declaring medals of this and that for him. And, you know, he's, uh, he's throwing out the first pitch at Major League Games. He was the, the marshal of the Rose Bowl. I mean, this guy was just like all of a sudden, dun, 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 dun. I think he was at the Super Bowl as well, flipping the coin and all the rest. I mean, he just became like overnight a, a national hero. Well, you may not know that after all the hoopla was done, he went back to being a pilot. Now, I'd like you to imagine with me what happened every flight from that point on in, uh, in his career. So imagine you're with me on the flight, and uh, it's the pre-flight announcements. Hello. Your flight crew today thanks you for flying U.S. Airways. 
We apologize for charging you $100 for checked luggage. You should have flown Southwest. <laughs> Hi, I'm, I'm Susie Q, your head flight attendant for today's flight. Please make sure your seats and tray tables are in their locked, up, upright and locked position as we will be taking off shortly. Serving you today with me are your flight attendants, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Captained today's flight, captaining today's flight is Captain Sully Sullenberger. Now, if you've ever been on a flight, you know that while these announcements are going on and they're doing the mask and all that, people are like, you know, no one's really paying attention. But imagine with me the moment when captaining today's flight is Captain Sully Sullenberger. All of a sudden, people are like, did he say Sully Sullenberger? Yeah, he said Sully Sullenberger. And of course, everyone's like, yeah, all right, captaining today, Sully Sullenberger. And, and, and why are they doing that? Because they know what he's done, right? He, he landed the plane on the Hudson River. Landing in Omaha isn't going to be so hard. He can do that. We're fine. <laughs> and of course, everyone's like all of a sudden going, Sully, Sully, Sully. Why? He landed in the Hudson. He landed in the Hudson. He landed in the Hudson. But what are they really saying with the applause? We're safe. We're safe. We're safe. Because if he landed in the Hudson, he most certainly can land the plane today. Paul says this. God who raises the dead. To us means... That if God can do that, then now in this affliction that I am in, what am I worrying about? We're safe. We're safe. We're safe. That's what he's saying. Verse 10. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Friends, Here's the third thing, last thing I want to say today, is that when faith in God loosens my grip, it feels like hope. What does that experience feel like? And that's very subjective, existential, but feelings are important as well. What does it feel like? It feels like hope. Faith and hope are two sides of the same coin. They always go together. In fact, you, you need both words to define each other. Hebrews 11.1, 1, the most famous definition of faith in the whole Bible says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Even the Holy Spirit, when he defines faith in this passage, uses the word hope. They always go together. Hope is faith's today perspective on the future. I don't need hope for yesterday. In a sense, I don't need faith for yesterday. Yesterday's already happened. I can't change it. I don't need to trust anything for it. It's in the past. I need faith for today, and I need faith for tomorrow. Now, faith rests in what has happened in the past for sure. But based on what has happened in the past, it gives me something for the future, namely hope. He delivered us from peril past, and he will deliver us future. On him we have set our hope. That he will deliver us again. 
So it is right for us to look in the past and to say, you know what? God has been faithful in the past. Look what he's done in the past. In fact, this is one of the things for me that is, I've a little older now, been around the block a few times, has been very helpful to me. When I'm in a trial, I shared with you, I'm in a difficult time even right now. What, what, what do I think about? What do I, where do I go with this? One of the things that I, one of the places that I go is I think about past times when I have felt the same way. And I think, you know, if today's Steve could go back to yesterday's Steve, who was in the same kind of issue that I'm in right now, I would say to yesterday's Steve, cheer up. It's going to be fine. Don't be so glum. Get over it. (laughs) So I have to believe now by faith that there is a future Steve who, if I could come back to me, if the future Steve could come back to me now, I would say, cheer up. It's going to be fine. God's going to bring you through it. This is the song, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. So, friend, is God loosening your grip right now? Are you in the crisis of that? Because it hurts, doesn't it? You're like, oh, it's so hard. Are you afraid to open your hand, to loosen your grip? Friend, the God you are struggling with loves you. And he is good. And the goodness of God and the love of God are a kind of garrison for us in the midst of affliction and trouble. He is for us. And our faith rests in that. So here's what we can know. We can know when God is loosening our grip and we face the prospect of some kind of loss. That instead of feeling despair, that faith feels hope. Now you may say, well, what does hope feel like? We're safe. We're safe. We're safe. That's hope. Praise the Lord. Amen.